Hello, and welcome to Temporary Tenants Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Nunes. I'm currently church planting in the north of Scotland in a town called Aberdeen. On my journey to church planting, I have gained over 10 years experience in different roles in ministry, from janitor to co-pastor and all the roles in between. My wife and I moved to Scotland to put to practice all that we had learned and plant a church. When I was looking for a podcast on church planting, I found a few. Though being a little bit of a tech nerd and always wanting to do a podcast, I saw an opportunity to bring my two loves together, church planting and podcasting. This podcast is going to be specifically talking about church planting, missions, and ministries. I will be talking to people who have done it before in the hopes of educating myself and hopefully you listeners along the way. This podcast, though, isn't only for the church planter or the person thinking about planting a church. This is for anyone involved in ministry. Hearing the stories of other men and women of faith should compel and encourage us to continue pressing on in our ministries and hopefully will spring forth a new wave of church planters. So join me as we listen, learn, and grow from those who have gone before here on Temporary Tenants. have author J.D. Payne on the podcast today with me. He's written several different books on the topic of church planting. He has a podcast called Strike the Match, and he is currently working as a professor. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I have gotten the opportunity to read his book, Apostolic Church Planting, would suggest it to everyone and anyone I can get that bug in their ear to read it who are interested in church planting or just the idea of church planting. Such a great book. But J.D., thank you so much for being on the show. Cody, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And you you are so kind in your words regarding my writings. Appreciate that, brother. Absolutely. We talked a little bit before about what the podcast is. So you already know my first question. And my first question is, how did you get involved in church planting? What was the catalyst that sort of put you on this trajectory to write these books and have those experiences? Yes. Well, I think at the outset, I need to make this statement, and that is I primarily do not consider myself a church planter, a missionary, Apostle Paul type, if you will. My my calling into vocational ministry from the beginning and even up till today has been really more in that pastor-teacher role. And so I have... Um, you know, served as a pastor in churches for 19 years and spent about 25 years in the classroom. And both of those kind of responsibilities have overlapped over the years. But to answer your question, from a theoretical entrance into the world of church planting, it happened as a student. From a practical level of entering into actual church planting activities, it also happened as a student, as an intern. I'll briefly comment on both of those. So I was pastoring before I went to seminary, and while I was in seminary, I was halfway through my MDiv, and I needed a three-hour evangelism elective to finish up as quickly as I possibly could because I really sensed that the Lord was wanting me to go on to do doctoral studies because 
I felt that he wanted me to keep one foot in the classroom training leaders at that level, but one foot in the field, so to speak. And in this case, it was in you know local church ministry. There just happened to be one summer, a course called Introduction to Church Planting that was being taught at my seminary, and it fulfilled my evangelism elective. It was taught by a man by the name of Charles Brock. Charles passed away a few years ago, and I did not know him. He was an adjunct professor. He was the president of Church Growth International. He'd served about 20 years in the Philippines as a church planter and had written several books on the topic. And so I'm pastoring this church at the time, and I'm thinking in terms of church growth as primarily just seeing one congregation grow larger and larger and larger. I knew that church planting was was important, really wasn't that much on my radar screen. But when I took this course, the Lord took me in a completely different trajectory. He shaped my ecclesiology in a different way. He transformed my missiology in a different way. And if it had not been for that one summer course in introduction to church planting that I was just trying to take to get through as fast as I could to graduate and get on into a PhD program, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, brother. <laughs> so it all goes back to Charles Brock. Clearly, it goes back to the Lord, but the Lord used Charles Brock in that process. And so his book, Indigenous Church Planting, was my entrance into the world of church planting. That's from a theoretical perspective. From a practical perspective, fast forward two or three years later, as I began to move deeper into this world, and I'm thinking in terms of how can I be involved in serving in church planting? How can I be involved in actual hands-on experience? And so I'm now out of my MDiv studies. I'm actually in a PhD program, and I'm studying, again, on an academic level related to movements and church multiplication. And our institution, I was at Southern Seminary when I did both my MDiv and my PhD in Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Our seminary had a church planning professor, a guy by the name of Ed Stetzer. So a few of you all out there, your listeners may know Ed. And he was overseeing this intern program, as well as all of the uh, church planning training for North American work in, in our denomination through his leadership at Southern Seminary. I got the opportunity, the privilege to be able to get to know, to know Ed at that point in time. And I uh, participated in this internship program. And so I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, here in the States, and was working under a church planter who had planted a church, and it was about four years old at the time. It was very much a congregation that modeled itself after, again, at that point in time, a lot of the new works were being modeled after Saddleback that Rick Warren planted in 1980 in Southern California. And so it was very much sort of a purpose-driven kind of model. Purpose-driven, And so that was my first entrance into the world of church planning from an actual hands-on practical experience. I went on from there to work with church planning teams in Louisville and train a lot of church planters over the years. But those were my two, two ways into this world of church planting from a theoretical and then also from a practical way as well. I, it goes back to Charles Brock and Ed Stetzer. So those two brothers are near and dear <laughs> to my heart. Wow, that's incredible just the fact that you you got to experience that as a young person, being able to go and hear Ed Stetzer and have that experience of church planting really just confronted at you with the Lord just opening your, broadening your horizon to, to church planting. So yeah, both those men, obviously Charles has passed away, but I've always admired, admired those men, their missiology, their thinking about Great Commission work. And they, I think there were two individuals that 
theologically, doctrinally sound, very sound theologically, but methodologically, they were willing to, and of course, Ed still willing to, to try new things within biblical parameters to reach people, make disciples and plant churches. And so they helped me to think beyond some of the traditional methodology, traditional strategy that, that I had experienced growing up as an established church pastor. What church were you a part of or pastoring at the time? So my denomination, I am Baptist of the Southern Tribe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was pastoring New Hope Baptist Church in Winchester, Kentucky in the 1990s. That's when I was, that was the first church that I pastored. Very established, or very traditional church in its structure and history and organization. It was only about 10 years old when I started pastoring there. And some of the church planters, family, the original families were still there and was pastoring that congregation. But then I was also going to school, working on my Master of Divinity program or my degree. And then after I graduated with my MDiv, the Lord moved my wife and I to, to Indianapolis and uh, we locked up with a church called Northwest Fellowship. They were also Southern Baptist Church. And at the time, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, uh, the pastor was also the planter. It was about four years old when we joined with that congregation. So you've gone through this program. You've got your, or you've started your PhD. You've probably finished by now. But what sort of led you to have this heart for church planting and the church planters experience because your book apostolic church planting is very theologically sound in how it goes about discussing church planting and looking at the first century church and paul and how he's doing it what sort of put you on that trajectory to get to that place of writing that book well the book by its very title is not reflective of a great deal of my experience in the field. Again, I don't see myself primarily as a church planter. There are a lot of people, yourself included, that have had a lot more experience than I have in that realm. But the book by its title is very much not like what has been, at least in a North American context, has been the predominant, I would say, the expected way of church planting, that being plant the church and pastor that church. And I'm not opposed to the plant and pastor model at all. I've trained a great deal of church planters over the years. In fact, um, after Ed left Southern, he went on to the North American Mission Board to oversee church planting training at all of our Southern Baptist seminaries in the United States and the one in Canada. So he was overseeing seven, seven seminary training programs for church planters. And I had the honor of being able to step into that role when he left Southern to become the uh, church planting professor at Southern to teach evangelism and, and church planting there. And so a great deal of what we were doing, and even to this day, a great deal of the expectation of church planting in North America is plant and pastor. But what I saw as I heard from Charles Brock, as he cast a vision for church planting, and his vision for church planting was to go back to the scriptures and begin to look at, well, what did the first century church do in this thing that we call church planting? As I was reading Charles and listening to him teach, I also came across another well-known individual, and his name was Roland Allen. And Allen died in 1947. He was an Anglican priest. He's most famous for his two books, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, which he published in 1912, and his, his other book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church, which he published in 1927. And so what Charles was talking about, what Roland Allen was talking about when it came to church planting, and then when I went back to the scriptures, 
um, what I was seeing was that there's not a lot of biblical support for a plant and pasture model. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's bad. And I, again, I have I've not only have I trained church planters to do that, I have served as elders in churches of some of my students who have planted and pastored churches and served alongside of them. So it's not a bad thing. It's not that it's wrong. But I began to ask questions such as, well, if what we're doing is predominantly this model that I ha- I'm having a hard time finding a solid biblical foundation for other than some proof texts, and everything looks very different, more of an apostolic paradigm, that is really what we see heavily throughout the New Testament, then maybe we need to refocus. You know, and it wasn't like, okay, we're for 50-50 in North America. It's almost, it's, it's more like 98, 99% we're doing one model. Now, outside of North America, it's a different conversation, and it was a different conversation at that time. But my journey into that book, the Apostolic Church Planting, Birthing New Churches from New Believers, was very much taking me back to the scriptures to ask those questions. And part of that journey came reading the writings of Charles Brock, Roland Allen, listening to some other church planters that were doing things differently. And so that's the sort of the backstory of the book as far as looking at a model that I think is what I would define as biblical church planting. Yeah. And I love that you you made that statement. That is the model of the biblical church planting. And so in in observing the progressive is such a like a naughty word now, but the, <laughs> the progression of church planting transforming into more of a corporate model, right? Of I've built this, it's mine. I'm the CEO now. And you know, I'm gonna ride this out until I go meet the Lord. You recognizing that in I guess for me, as a, as somebody who grew up in that model, as somebody who grew up in the plant and pastor and that sort of repetition, when I read your book, it was such a like shift for me, like swimming upstream. I kind of want to understand how you go about doing that well. How can I know how to hand this over? How can I know that this is going to be still here after I hand it over sort of a thing? So I just want you to talk about sitting comfortably within that model? Well, part of it requires most of us that have been raised within a more conventional model of church is really rethinking our ecclesiology. Uh, It doesn't mean that our ecclesiology is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it may not be helpful for the rapid dissemination of the gospel across a people group or a population segment. And it may not be helpful for the sanctification of future generations that come to faith. Why? Because of contextual factors, because of culture, context, things of that nature, because of, well, in some cases, structures and organization that's in place that that are too rigid for movement, gospel movement, gospel multiplication of disciples, leaders, and churches. So whenever you look at the apostolic approach to church planting, I think for us, many of us, it requ- it's going to require us to, to answer the question, what is a church? What is the local expression of Christ's universal body? That's a dangerous question to ask because there are so many things that are attached to our understanding of local church expression that we believe, we've come to believe that many cultural preferences are biblical prescriptions. And that is a dangerous thing. Cultural preferences are not bad. None of us can be culturally neutral. But when we begin to say this is required or this must be in place or this has to be the case, when in reality that's my cultural preference and it's not a biblical prescription, then I have entered into a realm of 
significant syncretism, it's very problematic. We're always wanting to say, hey, when we speak about Christology, we need to speak rightly. You know, when we speak about theology proper, speak rightly. Speak about our pneumatology, we want to talk rightly about the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to our ecclesiology, it's like we, it's like we move into a whole new realm, and we basically aren't willing to do that. So having said that, when you look at an apostolic approach, I think what you see as far as the pathway to planting is that it was really four. It was really a fourfold process. When you look at Acts 13 and 14, it's Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. When you look at, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul talks about what was required for the gospel to come to the Thessalonians and how they embraced it and ran with this gospel across Macedonia and Achaia. I think you see four steps and 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 the progress and there was a directional progress and it started with evangelism or the gospel was shared and then as people came to faith you enter into the second phase that is the disciples are made and then those disciples are gathered together to be identified as a church or a local expression of Christ's body and then the very last stage the fourth stage was the appointing of elders and you again you see this in Acts 13 and 14 and elsewhere but for most of us we want to take it from the reverse angle. We want to start by finding pastors and send them out to then gather together long-term kingdom citizens and identify as a local church, and then to equip and train those long-term kingdom citizens to make disciples and do evangelism in the community. And it is just the exact opposite of what we see as a pathway to planting in the New Testament. So to, to answer the practical question, you asked, for example, how do I know when I can pass the baton? I'm paraphrasing your statement there, Cody, but how do I know when I can pass the baton to someone else in leadership? Well, there's no hard and fast answer to that. And there's going to be a lot of factors that are at play. The apostolic teams never abandoned these churches. Uh, they would come back, they'd visit, they'd send an Epaphroditus or, or a letter back. But I think context, I think the working of the Holy Spirit, watch the team watching the sanctification and the life of those leaders, a variety of things are going to dictate that concept of phasing oneself out from the ministry and beginning somewhere else. There's no one single, you know, one single answer to that. But I think that the big thing we've got to understand is that, again, a lot of the things that we think we have to have, we don't have to have. We may have to have them if you want the cultural expression of local church that most of us are comfortable with but not necessarily what we have to see churches planted. And in some cases, sometimes we, that, all that organization gets in the way of movement. We say that it's there to help us have church health, but, and sometimes that may be the case, but sometimes it, I think it produces something very unhealthy. Could you give me like an example of what one of those things would be that would be hindering that plant where it is almost not to make it sound more dramatic than it needs to be, but suffocating something that you're trying to give life to. Well, I think that and this is just a small example, but I think that if you start with long-term kingdom citizens, people who've been believers for several years, but maybe they've moved into a city and they just haven't plugged into a church. Maybe they've been in a city for a long time and they've just been disobedient and not a part of a church. And I don't say this in a negative way, but they, as well as we, have ecclesiological baggage. And we can talk all day long about, okay, we're starting from scratch, and we can lay out a new vision statement, new mission statement, have these core values in place. We can do things fresh. We can come up with our own music and stuff like that. But we're bringing a load of ecclesiological expectations with us. And so 
oftentimes what I see is just the manifestation of, for example, the whole clergy laity dichotomy. It's still there, even in a lot of new church plans. I know we've stripped things down in the concept of, okay, we're trying to free up the body of Christ. But so many times when you have people who have for, for years been believers and they have not been sharing their faith and there's little accountability in their life or church membership to them means just showing up on Sunday for an hour or two, they're just going to carry that over into the new flavor of church in town. And there's not going to be really any substantive difference in them being freed up to, to run with the gospel across their social networks. Just because we've got a different praise team and a different style of dress and a different leader, it does not shift gears in the lives of people who've been carrying around these ecclesiological expectations. You are the pastor. You're really the one that's supposed to do this work. After all, that's what we pay you for, right? And I love that you use that example because I know several church planters that have said something similar to this. Like, I have believers, I have solid believers in my church that are doing nothing for the gospel, that they sit mm -hmm. and consume, but they don't proactively participate in church life. You know, whether that be on a Sunday or a Thursday or a Wednesday, right. whatever, they come and they sit and they consume. And I think that you are speaking to something that we are recognizing within not just church planting, but within Christian living become a, or we've had consumer mentalities within our own faith of I come consume right. what the pastor has to give. I pay him to give me that thing. And so I'm accepting the product that I've paid for. And that's all I've got. And I would say clearly, yes, I, I totally agree with you wholeheartedly. And so the issue of church revitalization and church health in established churches, that's those are ministries that need to be developed and grow and build upon. But when we think about apostolic church planting, when we think about this concept called church planting, th there was no discussion of church in the Bible unless you had disciples. And there was no discussion of disciples unless someone had gone to preach the gospel, do evangelism, where there were no disciples. And so what were they building upon? They The apostolic teams were building upon no one's foundation. That's the whole mm -hmm. argument Paul's making in Romans 15. And so that's where his desire is. That's where the apostolic imagination lies. I want to go where there has been no foundation, share the gospel. As Paul would say in Acts 20, 21, I've declared to both Jews and Gentiles repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now once they come to faith, he begins to teach them obedience and develop that ecclesiological expression. While there are always going to be stereotypes, particularly in areas of the world where you and I serve that are post-Christianized, primarily you know, traditionally the Western countries, there's always going to be baggage and stereotypes even unbelievers have about the church. But it's a much different point in a person's spiritual journey when they come to faith and you begin teaching them what body life is to look like, where they don't have a history of that, as opposed to someone who's had this history that's been very unhealthy for 10 or 15 years, and now we're just wrapping it in a, in a novel expression, they won't change overnight. And so I think that you often will see quicker, faster growth, healthier growth with the gospel advancing, with people coming to faith, being held accountable to walking with the Lord in areas whereby you're working where there has been no foundation. Now, it may take several years, particularly in, again, a post-Christianized context, like where we find ourselves in the Western world. But when that begins to happen, you begin to see a hunger to grow and a spiritual fruit that's being produced at a very rapid rate, even in a post-Christianized context, if you start where there's been no foundation. Mm, absolutely. 
So I have your book in front of me, and it'll help you sleep at night. Just bust it, it out, it start does, reading. It, it, <laughs> it'll put you to sleep. I, no, it doesn't put me to sleep. It keeps me up. It keeps me up thinking about all the ways that I'm not doing what. Oh no 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 no! And hey, that's a good point. I'm glad, no, I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you brought it up, brother, because there's something really important that I think I feel like I need to say, and because you reminded me of something, and that is. Oftentimes, I'll have a lot of guys to come to me and they'll say, hey, I feel like God's called me to be a church planter. And this would happen often when I was pastoring. And so we would begin to talk and I begin and I begin with my default as apostolic church planting. And I begin to talk about what I just said, go where there's no foundation, unreached people, share the gospel, make disciples, identify local churches, raise up elders and you and your team, partner at that new church and do it again. And I begin to ask them and they begin to say, well, no, I don't sense that the Lord's leading me to do something like that. And then I'll begin to talk to them and I find out very quickly that really their heart and their gifted mix and their calling is to be really pastor teacher. Mm. But at the same time, they feel like God's calling them to plant a church. So what I advocate is don't, don't go and try to be something you're not. Let's start instant church an instant church that you can begin to shepherd from, you know, from the beginning. This is what I would do when I was pastoring and we were sending out people. But I would always try to help church planners to recognize that apostolic church planning is not for everyone. And there's still a place for people to plant and pastor. It's just that you, we need to operate with a different approach. We need to operate mm -hmm. with more of a pastoral approach than an apostolic approach. If that's the case, if that's what the Spirit's doing in a person's life. So I know I digress <laughs> but you said something, and I thought, oh, man, I, I probably should mention that because it's going to sound like I'm wanting everybody to uh, to give up their calling and their gifts <laughs> and do it like I've written there in Apostolic Church Planting. No, and I think the beautiful thing about Apostolic Church Planting, and even just you saying not building on another foundation. So the context that I find myself in Aberdeen is we have a seminary here. We have, you know, a mm -hmm. long history of great men of faith that have come out of the city. Yeah. But it's as far as church movement goes, as far as Christianity, it's pretty dead. It's definitely post-Christian, post-modern, secularist society. And so it almost feels, the atmosphere feels similar to, you know, an unchurched people who not only do they not have a concept of Christianity, but they have a misconception right. of Christianity or misconception yes. of Christ. I think that the foundational truth of evangelism begets churches is beautiful and perfect and potent for the time that we find ourselves in that we're living. Like I said, I have your book in front of me. It helps me sleep. It doesn't put me to sleep, but it <laughs> helps me. And I wanted to ask you because there's a leadership development phase out that you have it's a little diagram it's a circle with other circles and going around and, and i just wanted to ask you so when you're thinking through church planting when you're thinking through yourself as a church planter what are sort of the, the check boxes that you need to be looking mm -hmm. for and getting to those road signs for your church plan well i'll give a statement that back in the 1990s I, in that initial encounter with Charles Brock, a statement that Charles said, and it's one of the gold, many golden nuggets that the Lord had given him over the years to share with others. And he made this statement. He said, what you want at the end, put in at the beginning. Mm. What you want at the end, put in at the beginning. So what he was saying in a kind of a popular way is what others like uh, like Tom Steffen, for example, in his book, Passing the Baton, talks about when he describes, describes this thing that he calls phase out. And what it is basically the team before they even enter the field. So we're talking pre-entry 
stuff here before they even get into the field doing ministry and sharing the gospel they're already thinking about what do we need to be doing to phase ourselves out and to raise up leaders from these people so when they're looking at a field of lostness when they're looking at lost people they're not just seeing disciples or a crowd of people gathered at a worship gathering they're looking at a, a group of lost people and they're thinking future church leaders and future church planters and, and this gets your question gets into the issue of strategy and that is you know as i talk about in the book there are certain things that a team needs to do along the journey from pre-entry all the way to phasing out there's certain things they need to do when it comes to when they do arrive on the field and when they do begin doing evangelism and then when they do see churches a church identified and when they do begin to think in terms of leadership development and so again you cannot put a timeline on this there's no really simple checklist that says okay when xyz happened we're good to go in fact no team moves through this process in a very linear way. First, you do this, and second, you do entry work on the field, and third, then you identify the church, and fourth. That's how I describe it in the book, just for teaching purposes. But in reality, it's messy and it's blurry, and things blur together. And so that's why it's important for a team to sit down and develop strategy, but hold on to it loosely. So the team... It knows the context. They know the people that they're working with. They, we've been with these new believers now for some time, and we've been teaching them this and we've been teaching them that. Uh, we've been seeking, praying, and fasting, looking at what the Holy Spirit's doing among them. We're talking to them as a group. You know, do you all see future leadership coming from out of this group as well? And so it's a conversation between the team, between the, the local, you know, the new believers that have self identified as a local church, and in light of the word and the spirit, that the team is beginning to ask questions who are those potential people that are being, being raised up? And so then the team begins to intentionally do less of the hands on kind of efforts, and they're doing more with the people that they're trying to raise up. The team is intentionally double booking themselves, so to speak. They're talking to these potential leaders. Hey, we can't be there today, or we can't do this in two weeks from now. Can we help you think through what this is going to look like? And we've got to go over here and do some other kind of ministry related activity or whatever. Uh, and then afterwards to come back and debrief and talk with those leaders and, and then get a read on them. How fast are they growing and developing in their, not only in their walk with the Lord, but just in their leadership skills in light of the people. Uh, because after all, they're coming out of the people themselves. I think that's a very biblical thing. We see in First Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, these people that were identified as elders, other than being apt to teach and able to exhort from the scriptures, all those qualifications and characteristics could only be identified if you had been in community with those people. Is this person given to outburst of anger? Is, does this person able to oversee you know, his household well, have a good reputation with outsiders? I mean, you know, for the most part, we've jettisoned those things, and we basically looked at resumes and can someone preach a 30 minute sermon and then let's check their references because after all people are going to put references on their resume that would say bad things right <laughs> i mean no we put references down that's going to talk positively about us again it's a conversation between the team between these new believers that have self-identified as a local church and the scriptures as the spirit is leading and there's no hard and fast i think checklist but i do think that there are things that need to be kept in mind and that's things related to maturation i think we need to look at if you're talking about elders you are looking at first timothy chapter three you're looking at titus chapter one you're looking at other passages throughout the scriptures and asking does this potential leader line up with these things but then I think you're also asking questions about skills, ministry skills, because this particular context and the skills required to lead with this group of people, 
would look very differently across the world in another context with another group of people. So those are some of the general principles that I train teams to think through and think about. But again, you're thinking about phasing out before you even phase in to your work. Mm. You use a term self-identify as a church. Yes. I want to know how important that term is because you've used it several times now and it seems like it's a very important term. Why is that so essential for a group of new believers for them to self-identify as right. a church? Well, I think there, there, some di there are different reasons why I think it's important. One, when a group of believers, so again, my definition of local church means that you're talking about a regenerate group. So they've been born again and showing that they have indeed been born again and they're uniting to Christ's body, they're baptized. It's the first act of obedience so that, that happens as close as possible in the New Testament to, to conversion. And so you're looking at a regenerate baptized group that I would say are committed to living out the kingdom ethic. So what is what are the commands of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation? They're committed to living out the kingdom ethic which basically talks about how they relate to God, each other, and those outside the kingdom, and that they self-identify as the local expression of Christ's universal body. Because when we read the New Testament, there was a distinct group in Colossae or Philippi or Laodicea or Hierapolis or Ephesus or Thessalonica or Corinth that would clearly identify themselves as the church, the ecclesia, the local expression of Christ's universal body in those cities, in those towns. And so when Paul would write a letter to them, he knew exactly to whom he was writing. When he would write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he would talk about a formative type of, or excuse me, a corrective type of church discipline but with a sexually immoral situation of a man who Paul was basically saying, if, if he doesn't repent, he needs to be excommunicated. In other words, there, there was very much a clear line drawn, if you will, around community of people who were regenerate, baptized. They were willing to lock arms together to live out the kingdom ethic, but they weren't just doing it as, to use an American expression, being lone, lone rangers for Jesus. So the solitary individual is just me and God, and that's it. But there was this expectation, biblically, that if you are a follower of Christ, the only way to grow as a follower of Christ and bear fruit is to be a part of his, his people, his community people. In various church traditions, they'll use expressions like when the, the group covenants together or they are in a, a constitutional relationship or something of that nature. But it's this notion of self-identifying. And I would say that until that group is willing to self-identify, they remain a Bible study or they remain a, maybe a worship group or maybe a preaching point. They remain a Christian fellowship, a, a Christian club, a, a campus ministry or something of that nature. But once they take that step and say, hey, we're going to self-identify as a local expression of Christ's body in Philippi or Colossae or Ephesus or whatever, that that takes everything to a whole new level of accountability before God and before one another. And so I would say the aspect of self-identification is something that's very important to the church planting process. And I would say until that self-identification piece uh, is not embraced by the people, I would say that they're not a local church. Now, are they a part of the universal body of Christ? Absolutely. Yes, most definitely. But there is that component of them being a local expression of Christ's body. The other thing, and this is more of a practical thing, the other thing is that if the group does not if I can use this expression, own the fact that this is their community, that they are a part of this group of called out ones, 
they're a part of this ecclesia. If they don't own it, then they're not going to be too supportive of ministry in the future. When it comes to giving, when it comes to using their gifts, their talents, their abilities to see this ministry reach others and serve others in the name of Christ. And so that notion of self-identification really needs to come from the people as they engage with one another and with the spirit and the word, rather than the team coming in saying, you are church, you are the local church. Because at the end of the day, when persecution comes, they will turn around and they'll point at the church planters and they'll say, well, they say that we're church. I really didn't say that we're church, so I'm, I'm out of here kind of thing. So essentially it does a disservice to those that you're evangelizing, those that you're discipling. If you prematurely say like, hey, we're church, a, a lot of church planting, I guess in the context of North America, plants a church and says we're church, right? And, exactly. you know, is that premature? Yes. We're already a church. We have our images and our building and our, our flags that we put up outside and invite people to church okay. instead of understanding that they make that decision to be church, to, right. to participate in that body. Yes. So we have our website together before we even get to the field, identifying ourselves as a local church. And it was always an interesting situation, whether it was me or whether it was other church planters that would make such declarations. And then people in the community would say, usually within the first week or two when they hit the field, well, where is your church? Meaning, where do you meet on Sundays? Well, we haven't really started gathering for worship yet. <laughs> well, how many people are part of your church? My, me and my wife, our kid, yeah. our dog, it's something like that. And so it, and, I, and even unbelievers have walked away with a funny expression on their face, wondering, what is this? Is this a cult? What is this? Right. So yes, to declare something beforehand that the Holy Spirit hasn't birthed, that to me is significantly problematic on an ecclesiological level, as well as on several other levels. Well, and it can be dangerous because then it can be isolating as well. Yes, right? yeah, you're right. You've already considered yourself church and then you have, you know, you're no longer creating a community and a culture within that community. You're saying we've created it and we're inviting you into it. And I would say from an apostolic church planting approach, that's not a healthy approach. Now, if I'm planting and pastoring, so again, not apostolic, I'm more pastoral, then I need a church to shepherd as fast as possible because I'm going to, I'm going to burn out because I'm going to be trying to operate primarily out of my gifting and my calling and how I'm shaped. And so for a group of long-term kingdom citizens to get together very quickly and to self-identify as a local church, that's a completely different conversation and one that I would say needs to happen, but that's a different paradigm than what we're talking about in the book Apostolic Church Planting. Again, I'll talk to, to talk to you know church planters all the time and they'll come to the conclusion they need to plant and pastor. And my next question is, how can we get a church together that you can shepherd as soon as possible? And the, the realization is that I'm primarily not an evangelist. It's going to take me a long time to see a church birthed out of the harvest because I'm going to be operating out of, you know, kind of how I'm wired. And so I would begin to say, well, how can we quickly get to get an instant church together so that in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 kind of way, you can equip those saints to do evangelism, to be missional mm. in that community. And that I think is appropriate to go very quickly to, to creating culture and context, but that's different than an apostolic church planning paradigm. Absolutely. And so with that paradigm of having those two dynamics of apostolic, not creating a culture, letting the culture be created by the Holy Spirit and through evangelism, and then having that sort of team mentality of where parachuting in with culture already solidified, how would you go about for the parachuting in? How would you go about inviting those people in? Because take it from this context, 
when I was going through seminary or taking some seminary classes on missiology and on the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's mission, it was, the professor said something interesting that made me take a step back. And what he said was, if you go into a church and you're church planting, but all that's coming to your church plant is other believers, then it's not necessarily a church plant. It's another Sunday service. So when I heard that, it was very compelling because I was like, yeah, church planting happens out of evangelism, 100%. JD wrote a whole book on it. Like, But how then do you go about just that brain shift of, I want evangelism, but I need, from a pastor's part, I need to shepherd people. Well, I think it's no different in in an, in a church or working with a new congregation as opposed to a congregation that's 30, 40, 50 years old. I think the principles are the same. Again, kind of in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, why did Christ give pastor teachers? You go on to, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not Yes, sure. I am to do the work of an evangelist. I'm to be engaged, as Paul would tell Timothy. I am to be involved in sharing the gospel in the highways and the hedges, doing evangelism out in the coffee shops or in my around my neighborhood or in my kitchen. But I am heavily to be involved in equipping all of these believers that are going to be in places where I will never be able to go because of who I am. And they have social networks that I will never have. And so I need to train them and equip them to engage in, in sharing their faith as they go throughout the week, wherever they go, whatever they do. And so that, that is no different in a new work as opposed to an established you know, church context. I, what I would say is that oftentimes in a new congregation, new church, there's a momentum, there's an energy, there is a fresh vision for reaching our community, our city, our geographical location with a light and with the light of Christ. And so I do think you have a heightened level of zeal. And there's studies out there that will show that even when the plant and pastor models that are newly planted churches, they tend to have higher evangelistic rates and membership to baptismal ratios than churches that have been well-established for 50, 60, 70 years. And so while the principles of equipping and training and casting vision and accountability are the same, in a new work, there's a level, again, of freshness that exists there and zeal and being nimble where we can try new things quickly and we can make adjustments when things don't work out as desired that exists in a new church plant, even if one's planting and pastoring. Cultivate is our primary sponsor here at Temporary Attendance, and so we have Pastor Nick Cady, who is going to explain what Cultivate is and how we can get involved. So here is Pastor Nick. The gospel is the hope of the world, and the world needs more gospel-centered churches. That is why the Cultivate Church Planter Training Program exists. At Calvary Global Network, we are standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us and wanting to use what God has given us to encourage and equip the next generation of church planters. We have created the resources and infrastructure to support 1,000 church plants over the next 10 years. These resources are personal, practical, and pastoral, and they are designed to prepare you over the course of six to 24 months to lead a gospel-centered community wherever God has called you. 
Our global team of mentors and coaches have thousands of hours of experience planting and pastoring churches around the world. And we are here to support you as you serve others in the work of church planting. For more information and to get started, visit calvaryglobalnetwork.com cultivate. And we look forward to welcoming you into this global family of churches planting churches. When you have somebody, one of your students come up to you and say, hey, Professor J.D., or Professor Payne, I want to church plant. What's your advice to them? What's your like resounding words of wisdom? Well, I would say that it requires me to get involved with that uh, particular student and let them know that I'm here for them. And so I want to talk to them about who they are. First of all, are they a follower of Christ? And I'm going to do things that I would do with them as I would do with church members when I was pastoring. But obviously, I don't have that local church you know, connection with them. They're my students coming in my office for a meeting or something. But I try to always have as my default setting to cast the vision for the unengaged and the unreached people groups throughout the world, whether that is in traditionally majority world countries or even down the street from where I am here in, in Birmingham, Alabama, where we have over 100 people from Yemen. So casting the vision for un, unreached and unengaged where there's no foundation. And I'm trying to explain to them how they can use their passions and talents and abilities and their marketable skills and marketable degrees to, to follow that apostolic pathway to planting, doing a forming team, doing evangelism, disciples made, church identified elders appointed. And so I try to talk them through that. And, I, and all along the way, I'm asking them, do you sense that the Lord may be leading you in this direction? What are people in your local church saying to you, brothers and sisters that know you and how you are shaped and wired? How are they speaking into your life when you share this burden, this vision with them? And sometimes they will say, that's exactly what I need to do. How do I do that? And then we begin to talk about you know, some ongoing training and some resources, and I try to connect them with others that are more experienced than I am. Maybe that's an organization or a network or some other level of training. But then sometimes they'll come back to me and they'll say, well, no, I don't really sense, I don't see myself as that apostolic missionary type. I, I think that the Lord's leading me to, to pastor, but I've got this vision, this desire to, to plant a church and with people to be missional, to be a missional pastor or something like that. And so it's at that point in the conversation that we begin to talk about what does it look like to be a pastoral? Mm. And there there is a wealth of material out there on the planting and pastoring model. We can go all the way back to the 1980s. That's basically how long we've been, been developing resources, that type of model, that type of approach. And so there's so much that I can point them to as far as church planner assessments are concerned, as far as you know, developing team, helping you know people catch vision, core values, thinking in terms of starting small groups from the beginning and connecting those together in the United States. What does that mean to be a nonprofit, tax-exempt organization, things of that nature. So there's a great deal of opportunities to develop people if they're wanting to plant and pastor, not so much so in, in the world of the apostolic. And that's where we as churches and as denominations and as networks, we really need to begin to use that as our default setting, allow that to be our expectation 
when someone says church planting and begin to develop you know a culture and an atmosphere of opportunity and training for people to move in that direction well jd i want to thank you so much for your time i so appreciate it loved our conversation love what you had to say about church planting apostolic or non-apostolic both were valuable your voice is heard for sure in this space of this important very important topic so i so appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me well, Cody, you're very welcome. And brother, I appreciate you and your ministry. You're laboring in a very difficult context in the traditionally Western world. And there are many of us uh, on this side of the ocean that are looking uh, in your direction for guidance and for wisdom in light of what does it mean to to make disciples in a post-Christianized, post-modern, uh, highly secular context. And so brother, Keep up the great work and and please share your wisdom with us. I'm so thankful that you're doing this uh, this podcast as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I would like to thank JD for being on the show today. I know for me, JD's writings on apostolic church planting have given me a fresh perspective on how important it is for evangelism and outreach to be the catalyst in which new churches are planted and how we can observe that in and throughout the book of Acts. If you would like to read Apostolic Church Planting or any of JD's other writings, you can do so by looking up JD Payne on Amazon.com or you can go to jdpayne.org and he has his resources and his books online right there for you as well as a link to his podcast called Strike the Match. On the next episode of Temporary Tenants, we will have my friend and mentor, Clay Worrell, and we have a great conversation about church planting, about missions, about ministry, and about attaching yourself to local leaders within the area of your church plant to really learn and grow in that cultural context And really, we focus and hone in on cross-cultural ministry and cross-cultural church planting. So it's an episode that you won't want to miss. As always, I hope that you continue to glorify and magnify the Lord in whatever season you find yourself in. 